championships, all-star nominations, coach of the year, and most valuable player awards. We all get into playing and coaching sports with the expectation of triumphant victories, exceptional performances, and moments of glory that will last a lifetime. If you have ever stepped foot on the field, court, pitch, or ice, you find out very quickly that our expectations are not reality. Oftentimes you find yourself standing in a heaping pile of shit within minutes of beginning a training, practice, or competition. What you expected to happen did not. And now you have to figure out how to clean your shoe, buckle up the chin strap, and move forward. Welcome to the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast with hosts Joe Durang and Dan Jascott. We are sports people for the sports people who don't mind a little bit of dirt, grit, and shit. Sharing our stories, insights, and commentary on all things sport. Coaches, athletes, ladies and gentlemen, how are you today? Welcome to episode two of the When Athletes Shit in the Woods Sports Leadership Podcast. Again, we're uh, excited to have uh, have you all here today with us. We're excited for a great guest. We have uh, high school coach Greg Jascott here from Connecticut. And uh, overall theme of this podcast is to get used to, uh, you know, expecting the unexpected, get used to things uh, going you know, not exactly how you plan and then doing your best to overcome those situations uh, that you weren't necessarily ready for. So excited for our second episode here today. Joe, Dave, welcome back. Greg, welcome to the W.A.S. podcast. We're excited to have you for (laughs) sports guys and gals who are into a little bit of dirt and grit. Joe, you're going to kick us off this week with a little segment called In the Trenches. So I'm going to turn it right over to Joe right out of the gate. We're going to hit the ground running this week. Yeah, nobody's been in the trenches more than our leaders as they navigate the different levels of leadership through COVID-19, whether it be state or local government, national, federal government, healthcare, hospital leadership, whatever it might be. Those folks have really been in the trenches. They have been the ones on the front lines fighting this thing and, and trying to um, help us as a society get through this, right? So I got into a back and forth with somebody who's close to the fight against COVID the other night and and got us thinking about the leadership and the varying levels of leadership and, and varying performances of leadership, shall I say. So, but before we get into critiquing some of the leadership that we've seen, I, I, I want to first say that there have been so many leaders who have gotten this thing right at so many of the different levels state leaders, county leaders, sheriff departments, hospital and nursing home administrators, doctors, nurses, EMS, first responders, you name it. They've gotten it right. They've been out there on the front lines, mustering up the courage to go into an unknown situation, put on all this crazy PPE gear and going out and stepping up with their actions to fight against this disease, to help save lives. Um, And because of their leadership, families have been spared people have been able to recover, hospitals have been able to continue operating. And so um, because of that, you know, obviously a huge shout out, huge thank you to those folks. These people deserve medals when this is all over because um, they've gone above and beyond the call of duty for sure. But make no mistake that this, the largest outbreak 
disease outbreak in human history really um, has shown some shortcomings when it comes to leadership. And so my question to you guys is when considering our political leaders, our community leaders, who's passed this test, this leadership test and who, who hasn't. Yeah. It's uh, what's your rubric? Like, how are you, how are you grading? I, you know, that's, that's a tough, cause it's hard to grade leadership in any situation, right? There's so many, so many different metrics to say someone's a great leader. Someone's not, this is what they can improve upon. You know, so that's one of the things you have to look at out of the gate is what's, what's your measuring stick, right? What are the, the categories you're looking at to say is doing this, is doing this exceptionally well, is yeah. doing this extremely poorly. And I think that's, from my perspective, it, I don't know if this is the easiest thing to define, right? right. It's not, you know, not the easiest report card to put together. Yeah. So this is a sports podcast and this topic is a little bit off of the, the sports realm but in sports you know leadership is measured in wins performance leadership is is measured in championships right so if we use that same metric on the on the local level we could get into discussing some of the data behind you know the out the outbreak in different places you know so ultimately i think we're talking about the number of cases and number of COVID related deaths. That would be my rubric. I would add into it, you know, I guess it depends on the level of sport that you're talking about. Yes, at the high end college level or at the professional level, wins and losses are it, right? You, you get your next contract because of wins. You make a, you know, you're a Hall of Famer because of wins. You're an award winner because of wins. You know, if you look at it from a different perspective, you know, maybe at the youth or the high school level, is a you know U9 hockey championship the measure of a great leader, a great coach? You know, it, it might be, hey, what do those eight, nine-year-olds turn into when they're playing at the high school or the college level? So that's – I think there's so many different ways to look at this, which is why, Joe, I'm glad you uh, – this is the topic you wanted to start the episode off with because, yeah, it's not necessarily directly related to sports, but there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah. And wins aren't just game outcomes, right? You could win in different ways. You can win in player development. You could win in influencing a team who has gotten used to losing to, to develop the winning attitude, meaning finish the drill, finish the play till the clock says triple zero, you play, you don't give up. I mean, that's winning to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the mindset, the approach preparation, there's winning and losing in all those phases of sport. And I think in, in the attack against COVID and the defense against, you know, def our people def uh, defending themselves against this enemy, I, I think there are absolutely winners and losers in this particular battle. And, and I'll start out with uh, at the state level. You know, I think just to talk specifically, you know, we have a, a state, the California um, governor, think has done a really good job over 40 million people largest in the nation has about and I'm gonna I have some numbers here 45,000 cases and over a little over 1800 deaths so I'm a stats guy that's 0.1 percent infection rate with four percent of those having died and now you know any one death is tragic and, and we never like to see it but 
when you're up against an enemy and and in the and when you're fighting a battle there's obviously going to be casualties and so limiting that i think is um what leaders can do and how you win and, and making those as uh, limited as possible so the the californian numbers in particular are interesting because california when compared to new york has la and la county and then new york has new york city so with the surrounding size of New York City, you know, LA County and, and some of the surrounding areas there, you, you start to find an apples to apples comparison regarding square miles. And so, you know, LA County has about 10 million people and 7,000 people per square mile. New York City, on the other hand, and that includes the five boroughs, has about 8.5 million people and 5,000 people per square mile. So it was a little bit smaller in terms of population. But the numbers of, of COVID would suggest that it's either far larger or the leadership just has not done a good job. And so New York State ranks fourth nationally in population as over 300,000 cases, 18,000 deaths. You know, 6% of those 3,000 cases have died. And so clearly California's leadership, California's approach, California's uh, attempt to stop the growth and mitigate the spread has won in comparison to New York. Why do you think that is? I think that, uh, you know, it, here in, on the East Coast, we get a lot of, being close to New York, we get a lot of New York statistics and uh, the subways are closing tonight due to this outbreak. Um, I look at COVID as if you, if in terms of sports analogies, I look at COVID as an expansion team. This is something that's never happened before. And when you're an expansion team, you go out there and you do the best you can and you gauge where you're at after a certain amount of time. I always think that the best play for this pandemic was to immediately isolate everybody and then work from the outside back in. Mm. And I think when you, when, like, when you think about the amount of time it took for employment or employers, businesses to close or to, to um, release their workers or telecommute, I think we waited too long. Mm. And I think we waited too long because people were nervous about doing this where, you know, if you look at that, my business, 80% of our employers are now teleworking and businesses have a hard time trusting workers to telecommute. Right. They don't think that the, the same amount of work is going to happen. And I always think like, Hey, you know, you can't, any decision you make necessarily isn't going to be looked at as wrong because this has never happened before. But the safest thing that we could have done right off the bat was to remove everybody and game plan, um, game plan with everybody home. And yeah. I, and I think that we didn't do a very good job. I think there are some parts of the country that didn't do a very good job of that. And so when you talk about stats, I think that that plays a role into that. Yeah. There's no question that um, there's no playbook for the scope and size of this pandemic, but there have been other outbreaks, 2009 H1N1 provided a lot of insight to state and local leaders regarding a, a pandemic-like attack and with especially with regards to the supply chains, PPE, 
stockpiles, national strategic reserve, all of that sort of thing were in play during H1N1. And at the end of that particular crisis, there were a lot of debriefs and a lot of information that came out that said, we don't have the stockpiles we need to really combat a significant pandemic. We don't have the money allocated to be able to replenish what we're using for H1N1. We don't have the policies to be able to uh, govern in a, a pandemic state. So I think that was a, a litmus test. And I think from there on, it, it, we got distracted on terrorism. We got distracted on other political initiatives and many reasons why leaders failed from 11 years ago, not just in these last six weeks. Yeah, looking at it from in Connecticut here, I can, you know, I think things shut down, whatever, there was a Friday in, in March, maybe it was the, 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 the 12th is when schools were, you know, sent home. And I think, you know, after school and any out of the academic realm, activities were shut down maybe that Thursday or Wednesday. You know, I, I, I can't help but look back at the, the CIAC, right? Here in Connecticut, they oversee all of the inter, interclassic high school sports here. They made a decision earlier than pretty much anybody else to cancel the, the winter uh, sports playoffs and soon after that to postpone the spring season. What's crazy, flipping on the news that morning, there were – cars and people protesting at the CIAC and I believe it was like maybe a Wednesday or Thursday morning that night the NBA the NHL professional leagues made the same decision to at least postpone right at the in, in the beginning stages so you know I think it's 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 difficult to overall say you know a state has done a great job or a state has done a poor job and you almost look at these smaller decisions and, you know, how do they add up, right? When you put them on a scale, do the small decisions, you know, add up more on the positive side or the negative side. But, I, you know, to touch on Dave's point, there were parents that were like, you know, it wasn't a riot, but there were, there were protests outside of the CIAC office for them making a, what I would consider now looking back a, a courageous decision before it was even done on a national level. And then, you know, all of a sudden people see it on the, you know, ESPN at night or the news at night that, oh, the NHL made the same decision. Yeah. And those pro <laughs> those protests were in the news cycle for like three hours, you know, versus if those professional leagues didn't make those decisions, that could have been something that lasted over the course of a week. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's, there's two conclusions to this. I think number one, crisis management or um, being able to deal with adversity and, and create a, an action plan moving out of the adversity is absolutely a leadership characteristic. Um, being able to be in the shit, if you will, and be able to make decisions to help improve your situation and, your, and, and the trajectory that you're on for the better in that moment is a leadership trait, is a skill that you can develop as a leader. And so what goes into that, I would say, constantly evaluating your position, constantly evaluating the, the, the battle damage assessment, the, the damage or, or um, issues that you are, are seeing and feeling and hearing and the outcomes that you're able to get and changing course 
when you continue to do the same things and you're not getting a different outcome. I would say that, Dave, uh, with regard to Connecticut and, and with, with the subway system, like you're just telling me that today they're closing the subway system? Like, it seems a little well, late, doesn't it? Well, I, I think it, it's part of a trickle-down impact in terms of, you know, shelters um, have closed as a result of COVID, which has created the homeless to ride the subways around the clock because the city created the sub the mass transit system to be free of charge at this time. So what's happening is, is that you have, you have frontline workers, um, essential workers leaving at all hours in the middle of the night and getting on a subway to go to the hospital or go wherever they need to go. And the subways are packed with homeless and it's creating a situation that is unsafe. It's unsafe for the homeless as well. But I think that, um, you know, this is this is this is the last thing I'll say to this. This is how I see it. I, I see, I see the country as a divide. I mean, COVID has really impacted what seventy and older, sixty and over. And I think, like, if you think of the CIAC, and I'm not saying that this is a hundred percent factual, but it's a belief of mine, uh, or or possibly uh, it's an opinion that the people that were advocating for the sports to continue are families and children that really don't fit that age criteria of being at high risk as a, uh, of COVID. And I think that um, a lot of people could look at it as selfish. You know, like you have, if you look at the majority of the people that are passing away um, from this, it's, it's really the elderly. And so the younger parents or the younger kids want to continue, which I understand. Um, right. And, but I think that um, it's, it's at times selfish. Yeah. Well, and two, six weeks ago when the CIAC or seven weeks ago, whatever it was, when, when they made that decision, we didn't really know that information. We didn't really have that level of data to be able to say, oh, well, this is the way it's acting. This is the way it's really going to play out. And so I, I think, you know, your first comment going from the outside in, that falls into, into line with that. But I also think that like in Connecticut, you know, I was in this conversation the other night going back and forth. I said, what has Governor Lamont done to, to drastically improve the, the outcomes in Connecticut, to make it better, to bend the curve, to do something drastic to make it so it's, you start to see improvement? Because this particular person was telling me it's a battle out there and it's bad. And, you know, it may not be bad in Florida where I'm at. Um, but it is in Connecticut. And I said, so what's the governor doing? And he just wrote social distancing. It just seems so inadequate to me. It seems like, well, you did that seven weeks ago and you're now where you were then even worse. Why wouldn't you do something else? Because they're fearful of being that person to make a decision that doesn't work. Connecticut often follows the lead of New York. So if you look at this tri-state area, Connecticut is following the lead of New York and New Jersey. And I think that um, I think that the leaders are afraid to say publicly, we don't know what to do. Yeah. See, that's, that is the, a lack of, lead, that's a leadership failure in my mind. And so in conclusion, because I know we have other great segments and a great guest to get to, but I'm going to say this, the last thing, my last takeaway on this is, is really over the course of the last, you know, 11 years, call it 20 years, leadership is what prevents pandemic, in my belief. Leadership is being able 
to assign a, a proper value to the risk that certain inherent worldwide risks cause to this country and be able to put the right resources, the right attention, the right teams in place to be able to prevent that. That's what we do on the, on the defense side every single day. And we do it really well, better than any country in the world. Why, why have we not been able to crack that code from the health side? Well, because I, I feel like, and, and this isn't really uh, based on any, anything I've seen or read, but my, my feeling is because it wasn't really, didn't have political capital. It didn't, it wasn't a big win on the political side, whether you're at the state level Department of Health or whether you're at the federal level and you're at Health and Human Services, you know, making a robust team and creating some robust strategies and having a robust budget in those departments didn't seem like a real big win politically. And so the end was some, we got hit and attacked. We've been, had our asses beaten by this thing and it's because we weren't prepared. And it's, it's crazy at reading some articles that, that come out every day about things to, to stick to mind. I, I caught one on Mass Live today, and I know Dave mentioned that the majority of people are, you know, on the older side, right, 60, 70 plus, or people with some inherent health issues. There was a, a 30-year-old teacher, just, just came out in the news yesterday or the day before, 30-year-old teacher from, uh, lived in the New York area, went to the school, went to school in the uh, University of Massachusetts, who twice went to go get testing was denied test just died oh from COVID gosh. crazy. And then the other article that, you know, I think which makes this situation so difficult and Joe, I agree with you at the, the contingency plans. And I think there, there's a ton of politics involved, which probably none of our ex area of expertise, right. At the end of the day, um, you know, another article I read was about a super spreader, right? New Rochelle was hammered, hammered at the early onset of this thing because they had what is now being called this super spreader who showed no symptoms, but had the COVID and was going about their business like normal. And, you know, the rapid fire of how quickly you can pass it along to other people, it spread like wildfire. New Rochelle was blasted by this thing right out of the gate crazy there's just there's so many unknowns that every day if you the watch of the news is tough every day you turn it on and there's you know people arguing about stuff and you know a new thing comes out new fact comes out and uh i think the general public you know as a whole it's 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 tough to kind of absorb it and make make decisions about it yeah well i'm gonna give a shout out to my man ron desantis governor of florida he's done an amazing job winner through and through he literally there are specific policies and ideas and concepts that he and, and his team have come up with to keep Florida on the lower end of the spectrum. Florida has 21 and a half million people, number three in the country. And we are far below uh, the top five in terms of cases, deaths, all that sort of thing. Um, and we have more tests going on than anyone right now. And a significantly higher percentage of our population in Florida is elderly, which makes them at risk. And everything is down compared to what's going on in the Northeast. So um, winner, winner, chicken dinner, Ron DeSantis. And I would send a word of caution down to my man, Ron. Have your head on a swivel for that dump of shit in the woods. Because right. in all seriousness, because like Seattle, Washington and Oregon, 
were hit before it hit to the East Coast and everybody, oh, not, not a big deal. And then all of a sudden it hit the East Coast. There's, I, I spoke with a college uh, soccer coach who was, uh, was in conversation with a, a fellow coach who coaches out of Wisconsin. He's like, yeah, we've had one case. You know, so that, that's the thing. I think be prepared for the unexpected at this point because uh, the plan that's working now, and God bless Florida and, and everybody else that's handling this thing well, but have the head on a swivel because it could change. No question. So let's bring in our guests. I, I got a question for Greg with regards to this. Greg, what do you make of the leadership aspect of this? You're in leadership every day with your job, with coaching. What do you make of the leadership aspect of this from what you've seen? Well, I, I think the I think the most frustrating thing is the the fact that we weren't as prepared as we could have been. Right. Um, and again, in, in something so new and so unknown, you, you can never be fully prepared. But I just don't think we were as prepared as we could have been. And I'm talking on the the state level, the the federal level as well. I think that had we acted earlier, we could have been better prepared to handle this on all levels. And you know, the question I, I wish I had an answer to is why aren't there more tests readily available to every state? You know, why, why do we have to wait or why are people turned away when they're, when they're trying to get tested? Um, you know, I, you know, from a leadership standpoint, I mean, you know, one thing you always think about is being fully prepared. So the people that you're leading are also prepared. And if you look from the, you know, the federal government on down, if the federal government's not fully prepared, how can the States be fully prepared uh, to handle this? And, and, that, and that's frustrating to me. And I, I just, you know, feel that we could have done a better job. Uh, and it's, you know, yeah. a little late to go back now and change that, but <laughs> right. it's unfortunate. Well, well, we, we should have done a better job in it. And it's the people who we elect to um, lead us who should have done a better job. And it's their task to make sure that number one, we fix it. So we don't sure. continue down this path. And number two, looking at other vulnerabilities that we have and saying, you know, we got caught there. Where else are we vulnerable right now that we can bolster or relook to, to make sure we don't get blindsided like this again? Yeah. I mean, you hope that you hope that like any, any experience you learn from you right. know, your mistakes and, you know, and then, you know, hopefully you're able to avoid something like this in the future. Absolutely. We're going to take a, take a short break right here. Great start, Joe. Thank you. I know, and again, not a direct uh, connection to sport, but this is all about leadership and sport and, and, and being able to uh, respond to adversity and the unexpected situations. And we're surely in the midst of that right now. Everybody is uh, knee deep in it. And, you know, again, Joe said it in the beginning, but for all those people that are, that are out there battling this thing and putting themselves at risk uh, from, you know, healthcare to the, the grocery stores and, and everybody else, a, a, a big thank you. True, true heroes for sure. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. We'll introduce our guests of the week and keep the ball rolling forward on the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. We are back on the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. Again, thanks, Joe, for getting us kicked off with a hot start right here. We have a, a great guest. And we are family, so I guess I'm obligated to say that. But 
we'll go with it. We'll roll with the punches here. Uh, Greg Jascott, he's the Associate Director of Advancement at Xavier High School here in, in Middletown, Connecticut. He is the offensive coordinator for the football program and, you know, spent the past 15 years, you know, coaching in the football program, working himself up through the ranks. So, Greg, really appreciate you joining us and, and pitching in on that first first segment. How the heck are you right now? <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm good. I'm, you know, trying to make the best of the, the time that I have here uh, staring at my computer every day. But, uh, you know, it has not been the easiest adjustment to make, but uh, trying to make the best of it and, uh, you know, take it a day at a time and see where things go from here. Love it. Tell the audience what you do for a living. So I am the Associate Director of Advancement at Xavier High School. Uh, it's uh, year two in that role. Uh, previously, I was in the classroom for about 14 years. I, I deal on a day-to-day -day basis with our alumni base uh, in fundraising. I also deal with alumni relations when it comes to you know events um, and things of that nature. And then obviously, I've been, you know, as Dan said, I've been coaching football for 15 years now, uh, starting off at the freshman level and have been the offensive coordinator for six years now, I believe. Awesome. Um, Looking at the panel here, all of us are grads. This is like an alumni get together. Like, this is, this counts as work for me right now. Can we so get some, uh, can we get some money for this? Like, you know, <laughs> reimbursement of funds here for uh, school activity? Yeah. I might be asking you guys for money before. This <laughs> yeah, probably right. Well, I, will I was fearful of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Dave's been on mute this whole conversation. <laughs> I'm here. I was thinking about all the money I've given over the years since 95. It's not pretty. I will no, say, Greg, one of the big initiatives you've, you've, uh, you've taken on is the alumni golf tournament. Yeah, we, uh, that was one of my, that was actually my welcome to the advancement office uh, project, which, I, you know, for, for those of you who have never run a golf tournament, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, it, there's a, a ton that goes into it. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have uh, a gentleman, Rich Fitel, who's helped me along the way, uh, who has quite a few years of experience in that department. Uh, but along with Rich, we had anywhere from 15 to 25 uh, Xavier alums who pitched in and, you know, did their part in raising funds uh, for the golf tournament, which in turn, uh, we raised funds for financial aid at the school. It's quite the undertaking, but uh, it's 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 a lot of fun working with a great group of, of Xavier grads. And you know, then you know, obviously, like anything, when you get to the the day of the tournament, you know, it's fun to see the you know 140. Actually, I think we've had 153 golfers the past two years. Uh, it's a really great day for Xavier, and it really it it speaks volume to what the Xavier community is all about. And all goes to students, right? Sure does. Uh, every every dollar we raise goes towards financial aid, uh, and that was something that we, as a committee, said that the only way we'd do it is if all you know the money all went towards financial aid, so that kids are able to experience Xavier education. Yeah, that's awesome. And and not to belabor the uh, Xavier specific point too much, but there's another uh, advancement story that I love. One day you're able to go out and get some pro jerseys. Talk a little bit about that. You're doing the pro jerseys. Yeah, weren't you getting alumni who had made it to the pros getting there? Yeah, so we, myself, the headmaster, uh, and uh, the assistant athletic director, Dan DeConti, we, we thought it would be cool to have, you know, the professional jerseys of the Xavier alums hanging in our new fitness room that we opened a couple years ago. 
so we did we we hung them up and the kids love you know seeing the, that up there and you know we have everyone from um timmy boyle most recent to uh rich magner which is not up yet uh that will be the next one that's going up on the wall from his uh day i gotta see i want to i gotta touch that one that was wasn't good. he the bullpen catcher for the dodgers during the world he was Series. in the dodgers organization for i don't know how many years to be honest with you but um he was in the uh, farm system i believe as a player and then also as a player manager which i guess was a more common back in those days i don't want to i don't want to date rich but uh <laughs> I think that was more common back in back in the 70s than it is now for sure at the triple so have... a level i think right he's a player manager at the triple a level i believe so yeah wow that's awesome so we have obviously jeff bagwell amari yep. spave bill um, murphy yeah bill murphy los yep. angeles rams uh we have a a Ryan Priest, who's a yep. NASCAR driver currently. The um, the tight end played for Jets and Giants. Will Ty. Yep. Uh, Nick Greenwood uh, played for the St. Louis Cardinals. Cardinals. Yeah. Another organization as well, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so there's uh, quite the list. And it's, uh, quite the it's stable special. of pro athletes. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, pretty special for the kids that are currently in school to see that stuff. And uh, it's always nice for the alums to come back and see that as well. It's a great place. I think about it every day in my experience there and, and wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. A, a really special four years for me and grateful to you and your family and your father for all the, the work that the Jascots put into that school. Appreciate that. Yeah, man. Thank you. T TJ is why Joe turned out to be such a stellar uh, football player. There's no question. There's no question. <laughs> if it wasn't for him, I'd be lost. <laughs> That's why I'm wearing this shirt right here in honor of TJ, baby. <laughs> Xavier football, desire wins. I love it. Yep, from back in the day as a throwback. <laughs> Was a throwback. The Cooperstown collection here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so Greg, we're gonna um, we're gonna get going with it. You would be close to getting into spring ball right now. Give the listeners a little insight as to, you know. Obviously, that's not happening. You're not seeing the kids in the weight room. You're not seeing the kids in the building. What are some ways or strategies you've used to keep your athletes engaged during this time of quarantine? Well, I'll talk about the, the workout piece first. Um, so our head coach has been sending more or less body weight workouts every day, Monday through Friday, which is you know when we'd be in the weight room if we were in school together. Uh, he sends them out usually 10 o'clock in the morning, and you know the kids are – hopefully doing them when they have the opportunity to, uh, you know, taking a break from their schoolwork or after they're done with the schoolwork. Uh, our athletic trainer more recently has started offering Zoom um, workouts where kids can sign in and, you know, do a workout in a small group. Uh, we have a parent of one of our athletes who uh, does training for a living and he, you know, he offered a program to our kids as well. And I, I want to say a small handful, probably eight to 10 kids. Uh, signed up for that program. They they meet once a week. So from the workout side of it, you know, we're trying to do our best to get information to those guys so they have something to do. Um, you know, we're constantly reminding them, whether it be uh, via email or phone, to you know stay active. Um, because a lot, you know, the reality is this: obviously, we want them to stay in some sort of shape, but it's also good for their, you know, for them men uh, mentally. You know, they, you got to step away from the computer and step away from the work. Uh, for a few minutes and get a workout in for an hour or so uh, it'll do some do them some good for sure uh, also I mean in terms of contacting those guys I'd say from the first week I just started picking handfuls of kids uh, 
you know, every couple of days I'd reach out. I'd usually give a phone call, regardless of their grade. I'd try to reach out and check on them, see how they were doing uh, mentally with, with, you know, everything and making the adjustment to learning from home because it's quite the adjustment. Uh, and I've continued to do that uh, over the past, what has it been now, a month and change, I guess, month and a half. Um, yeah, and then we've also been doing some Zoom meetings and whatnot uh, to stay in touch with the kids, with position coaches and things like that, check on them and talk some football. How much do you and your fellow coaches interact and game plan and strategize on the communication effort and how to keep the kids moving forward? Uh, well, we've been, we've been meeting as a staff on every Sunday and, and then we do offensive staff meetings. Then Mondays we're doing defensive staff meetings. So both nights we typically end up talking about, you know, how ways that we're going to stay in touch with the kids and which kids we've checked on, which kids we need to check on. Coach Guion and myself, the head coach and myself, we've been keeping up with the kids' grades. Uh, we both have access to their grades and all their classes. You know, so obviously if kids are falling behind, things like that, we can, you know, maybe throw them an extra phone call, phone call if necessary to make sure they don't fall too far behind. Greg, I got a question. It's kind of a what-if question. But say sure. this, this uh, you know, COVID goes into the fall and the fall football season is impacted. What happens to the junior – or the senior, the junior more importantly, right? Because that's your big year in terms of mm -hmm. that junior has a possibility of playing at the next level. That's, that's, a, that's an important year. Or the senior on the verge of, of trying to get in someplace. What happens in that situation? And do the, have the colleges reached out to the high schools to say, hey, look, this is what we're going to do or try to do if this happens? Uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate the question. I wish I had a, a good answer for you. I think, you know, that it's – is a lot of unknown to that right now. And I think from the college perspective, I think a lot of those guys are probably doing their normal recruiting, um, you know, planning as if things would be normal come fall. At the same time, I think they're also concerned about what's going to happen with their season and, you know, how that's going to work in terms of scholarships and things like that. You know, how many scholarships will be able to offer, uh, you know, that's the reality. So I, it, there's a lot of unknown there. Um, we're trying, trying to, stay in the positive end and think we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to get going sometime in July or August, you know, at some point we may have to cross that road and, and discuss some of those things and come up with a plan. Um, yeah. And there's always prep school, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, and it, you know, prep schools may come into play, but you know, at the same, same time there, you start talking about the, the a new financial burden, which for some may be, you know, more of an issue after this whole thing is said and done. Uh, but yeah, prep school may become, uh, uh, an avenue for some kids, for some athletes. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's, you know, a ton of unknown right now. And it's tough to really say, this is our plan. This is what we're doing. Cause we don't know when we're going to be able to get back on the field, when we're going to be able to get, you know, on the, in the weight room with the kids. Yeah. So yeah. taking it a day at a time and trying to plan out as best we could based on the information that we're given. Yeah. Well, unknown and uncertainty and not having, um, a plan doesn't really make for good entertainment value. So we're going to talk about what you do know. <laughs> uh, we're going to, I have a question for you. When, you know, as a coach, obviously as a high school football coach, um, you have a, a large group, you know, mm -hmm. you guys, it's not just a couple athletes. I mean, you guys have how many kids on the team? Uh, about 70. Yeah. Yeah. That's a large sixties, low seventies, large program, a lot of kids, a lot of communication, a lot of uh, 
you know, influence to, to get them into the program, to influence the way they think, feel, and act about not only football, but about their schoolwork, about their discipline, about their preparation, all that type of stuff, right? So from the, from the student athlete level, uh, given all of that, what does the role of leadership have on your team from the student aspect? And, and how do you implement leadership within your ranks from the student athlete perspective? Well, I, I mean, I think a big thing is you want to get the kids to understand that they should hold each other accountable because, uh, you know, ultimately the success of the team uh, is based upon all of their effort throughout the, throughout the year, uh, whether it's in the weight room, in the classroom, um, you know, when we're in season on the practice field, uh, you know, and things like that. But, you know, they, they need to be accountable to one another. Um, you know, myself, the other coaches, we can we can try to set them up to succeed. We can try to put them in position, position to be successful, but there's also their end of it where they have to, A, hold themselves accountable, but B, hold each other accountable. Um, you know, one thing I, I say often to those guys is, you know, before games, I'm going to, you know, do my best to put you in position to be successful, but you got to do your, you know, your 111 each year. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't got to do it for me. You got to do it for the guy that's standing next to you, the other 10 guys on the field with you. Um, so I think that's a big thing to try to get them to understand the accountability piece um, when you talk about leadership. Um, you know, and, kid, and kids also have to understand that there's different types of leaders. You know, and I've been at Xavier for 15, 15 years now coaching. And, you know, we've had captains who were you know, very vocal as leaders. We've had captains who were just, I'm going to show you how to do it. We've had kids that weren't captains that were great leaders, mm -hmm. uh, you know, both, you know, several styles of leaders. And, uh, you know, so I think there's a lot of different ways you can attack that, but I think accountability is a big, a big piece to, you know, the puzzle when you're talking about getting the kids to understand, you know, the whole process. Yeah. When, when you guys bring, you know, kids up from, from ninth grade into the 10th grade, uh, part of the program and, um, they're then, you know, probably JV and with, with goals and, and routines to, and aspirations to try to get to the varsity level within, you know, one or two years after that. Um, how do you communicate the expectations? How do you communicate kind of the goals for which, you know, you set for those student athletes and, and what role does that play in your, your practice, your meetings, your, uh, you know, year-round interaction with these kids? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in an ideal world, you'd like your, you know, your standards and your values to be throughout the program. So you're, you know, yeah, our freshman coaches have their own practice field. They work with those kids. Um, you know, JV and varsity guys are together, but you'd like to have, you'd like to have a set of standards and expectations that are you know, that run throughout the program. Um, and I think that's, it's on all of us as coaches to convey that to the kids and to get that message across. What are our standards? What are our expectations? You know, and if you, if you get the kids to buy into it, then they're going to, you know, it's a trickle down effect. I mean, yeah. the press are going to see it and, you know, and you're going to continue to say it, but realistically, if the kids see it in action, then that's going to be what they you know, imitate almost yeah. you know, the young yeah. kids oftentimes will look to the older guys as to, you know, how they, how they stretch, how they, you know, their effort during conditioning and things of that nature. So I, you know, I think it's really just the, the important piece is having the, uh, the same message throughout the entire program. 
Yeah. No, it, it's so uh, instructive, you know, and it's the same thing, you know, in the corporate level when you have a, a group of adults that you're onboarding into your team. First and foremost, you want to show them the values and the guiding principles with your organization and then start to set the expectations for conduct and appearance and professionalism and all of that sort of thing. So these kids are getting a, a very real and pertinent life lesson in ninth grade, which I think is amazing, um, is another reason why sports is so impactful. How about captains? How do you view the role of captains? What input do your captains have from the, you know, the student athlete captain? Um, how, how much of an impact do those kids have on the decision making for, you know, whether it be uniforms, whether it be practice schedules, whatever it may be? Well, I don't, um, I don't, I'm a coordinator, so the head coach does deals a little bit more with that than I do. But um, I do, I do know he meets with the captains typically once a week um, and, and talks about, you know, you know, different things that we have going on, whether it be a, something at practice or a game or, you know, the jerseys we're wearing that week and things like that. Um, my point of view, you know, captains, captains should be respected by, by their teammates should be respected by the coaches. They obviously did something to earn that, that job. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I personally take stock in what the captains would say to me, you know, if they came in and said, Hey, you know, offensive practice, we, this, this period was tough or we struggled. It was a little bit slow. You know, I would, I would value their opinion in there. Now, would I change it immediately? No, I would certainly take a look at it and, and, um, kind of evaluate things uh, because I, you know, again, you should, you should trust what your captain's thoughts are and what they're, what they think is going on. And, you know, you should value their opinions. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. And if you're going to bestow a leadership title on them, then you should treat them with respect and giving them, you know, a, a voice, a, an opinion, a say on uh, whatever it may be, whether it be performance, appearance, um, events, things like that. So that's awesome. Over the past, I'd say year and a half, maybe two years, uh, in talking to some high school coaches, I've had, and this was a surprise to me, I've had a handful of coaches tell me that they've stopped naming captains, hmm. whether it be a vote or the coach's name. And, you know, my immediate response was, well, why, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's the change. And the common answer I, I received was there were two is one, the title was given much more stock than the actual role that the captain's supposed to play. And two, they felt like if, you know, you're a roster of, you know, six, 70 guys say, and you have, you know, 20 seniors or 15 seniors and you name two or three seniors captains that with the, the modern athlete, those kids that aren't captains are less likely to feel the confidence and the comfort to step up and lead. What are, do you have any thoughts on that? Cause I, I, and it's been more coaches recently bringing this concept up and it's, it's brand new to me. I've been out of coaching for some time do you have any thoughts on that, on that dynamic that's starting to be more prevalent now in sports at the high school level? Yeah. I mean, my, my thoughts pretty simple. I, I don't, I don't believe in that way of thinking. I think that, you know, 
regardless of the title, you're going to have kids that are leaders. Uh, you know, and, and I can use different years as examples, but you know, we have anywhere typically from one to four captains at most usually, and there are always seniors who step up in leadership roles who aren't don't have that title attached. Um, so I've never saw I've never seen it as you know a deterrent to someone stepping up in in their you know in, in, as a leader. Um, we we typically vote pretty late. Our kids vote. Uh, and we don't we don't do it until after the preseason has started. I know there's a lot of programs that do it early on in the off season, like shortly after the last season had ended. Um, I personally like the way that we do it because it kind of gives you an opportunity to see how leaders develop through a longer period of time, like in the off season, uh, when it's not you're not going to the field and have you know playing the sport every day. You're doing stuff in the weight room. You're you know which kids are out there in the hallways making sure that their teammates are getting in the weight room. I mean there's you know, so I, I, you know, I think there's different ways you can look at it. And, you know, maybe it's how you vote or how you name your captains has an impact on that. But I've never, I've never seen, you know, seen it where kids were named captains and others were refused or, you know, didn't want to step up as a leader because they didn't have that title attached to them. And it sounds when you, when you compare the two, like some programs will name the captains when the, the season ends, maybe at the award ceremony versus, waiting and going through you know we've all lived this the summer workouts come on right as a as a you know 17 year old kid it's like <laughs> eh, that's probably the, like the last thing on the list you want to do during the but, summer so it's almost that culture of it's not a ritual to name a captain it's a freaking privilege and an honor and something that you have to go out there and show to your teammates and to your coaches that you've done what it takes to earn that title, that badge. For sure. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, th that off season work that you just spoke of, that's arguably some of the most important <laughs> weeks and months of the, of the season happen in the off season. And, and, you know, you can see a lot and you, you can really not just the coaches, but your peers can step back and say, wow, this kid is, this kid is our leader. Like he's, he's here every day. He's doing the work. He's always the first one here, last one to leave. He's, you know, pushing us on the field when we're running and things like that. It's those months are critical. And I think that's where the leaders are quote unquote born, yep. you know, yeah. through that grind, as opposed to, well, we just finished the season. Here's our, here's our captains for next year. Yeah, it's easy to lead when everybody's grab assing, right? Everybody's <laughs> celebrating. It's easy right. to lead then. Right. Greg, if I'm a, a sophomore or, or maybe a, unheralded junior what do i have to do to catch your eye to get some playing time what do i have to do to stand out and you know make it impossible for you to not put me in the game well i think it's i think a lot of it is the off season i mean you know we we know i'm in the weight room every day that it's open uh, obviously this throws a little bit of a curveball in there the whole uh you know work at work from home but uh <laughs> you know you want to see kids who are willing to work hard, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. You want to see kids that are willing to learn, you know, kids that are afraid, you know, not afraid to try new things. You know, if they've always run a route the certain way, you know, we want them to do it our way. And, you know, we want to see kids that are willing to work with their teammates, push their teammates, uh, you know, in, in, in full effort. 
you know, it, it's very easy over a two and a half hour practice to have a, you know, a five, 10 minute period for a 15, 16, 7 year old kid where they get a little bit lazy or, you know, lose focus. Yeah, I want to see the kids that are going to be able to stay focused throughout the entirety of the practice. Um, yeah. And I always, I always tell our kids is we're watching what you do from, from the stretch lines to when we break down at the end of practice, you know, we want to see which kids are willing to jump up and hop into a drill when a coach calls for another player. You know, some of the best times are when you see like a 165 pound sophomore receiver jump in when a coach calls for like a defensive lineman or something like that, that kid wants to play football. Right. Yeah, that kid clearly wants to play football and more times than not, they're going to get thrown out because of safety issues. But um, <laughs> I mean, th those are the things you look for, you know, you look for a kid's effort and that's, that's a big thing with me. Is the kids yeah. And, and you don't need any skill to do any of those things, which is great. And it, that one of the reasons why I love the game of football so much, but I'm going to press you a little bit here. Give me some skill related attributes or behaviors that you want to see on the field that, we're are going to say, wow, like you're a weapon or you can, you can add value or help us in, in these different offensive positions. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll just, I'll give you a couple of examples, but you know, you talk about a wide receiver, you want to see a kid that can run clean routes. Um, and what I mean by that is get off the line of scrimmage. If there's a defender in your face, um, you know, can you push a defender vertical and make a clean break, uh, set up your breaks, um, mm -hmm. you know, know the depth of your routes and, and, in order to do that, you have to know what the break point is. And, you know, so, so, you know, running full speed and being able to, you know, use your footwork, you know, foot footwork uh, ability to make a clean break, uh, catching the ball. I mean, <laughs> got to be able to catch a football to play receiver. Uh, so we look for, you know, how does a kid catch? He catches with his body all the time, yeah. uh, so using his hands constantly. You know, and the other piece of playing receivers, are you able to block? And that's the, you know, what's his block, what's his technique? Is he, you know, I always compare blocking from a receiver to tackling. I mean, it's really the very similar skill, except you're not allowed to wrap up and tackle when you're on offense. But, you know, is he able to, um, does he understand what his quote unquote cushion is when he needs to break down so that he can react to, to the defender? Um, and, and engage and you know his hands hands are always key feet yeah. are always key I love the story of David Tyree the practice before the Super Bowl <laughs> when he couldn't catch a ball to save his life no nope. <laughs> and Eli Manning left that practice thinking oh my goodness gracious what do we got here and uh, tried not to think about it uh, over uh, the, the I think it was Saturday Friday was their last practice and then they went into the game, and everybody knows what happened. But um. and Joe, you're an you're an avid Eli hater, and I'm going to bring <laughs> up one of Eli's uh, yeah. wonderful leadership qualities after that practice, documented on video. Pulled them aside and said, "Hey, don't worry, you're going to get them." Yeah. Right. So that caught the guy just had the worst, the shittiest practice you could imagine, yeah. like like the walkthrough before the Super Bowl. Right. And he gets the, 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 the add a boy, you're going to go get him from the, from the star of the team. Yeah. And the touchdown he caught, not the helmet catch, which everybody remembers the, the touchdown he caught in the Super Bowl was the play that he just butchered in practice, just fighting right. the ball of it tremendously. Right. It's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. yeah. That happens. I mean, you know, receivers have their days uh, where they feel like every time the ball's thrown their direction, they drop it. But, you know, you got to, as a quarterback and as a coach, you got to, you know, you got to 
maintain the trust that you have with them. And they're, you know, they're out there getting those reps for a reason. So yeah. Yeah. Faith in the process at that point, whatever cliche you can come up with. Hey, so uh, you brought up Tim Boyle earlier. Uh, he's a, he's a great kid. He's you know currently with the green Bay Packers. He's a kid you coached since his first day of uh, football at Xavier high school. Now, obviously to get to, he's, he's in the NFL right now from Connecticut, which is few and far between. Right. Um, so to get there, there's gotta be a level of skill that is just, you know, physical attributes, ability to throw the ball, ability to move, et cetera. What were some of those, you know, quote unquote intangibles or, you know, that you, that maybe you saw from Tim as a high school athlete that, you know, in your mind will allow you to say, Hey, this kid's got a shot. You know, it's a, it's a, maybe a slim shot right from Connecticut, but this kid's got a shot to go on and, you know, make, maybe make a mark at the college level or even beyond that. Yeah. I mean, quarterbacks, quarterbacks are unique. And I, you know, I can remember Timmy as a freshman in high school and he had, you know, he had the quote unquote tools uh, to be a very, you know, at the time you think, okay, this kid has the tools to be a very successful high school quarterback. And he, he see, you know, has some special talents as well. Um, you know, but when you talk about a 14, 15 year old kid, you know, he, what you, you know, he had a hell of an arm, you know, from day one, uh, did he necessarily know how to use it? Not probably not yet is young, you know, on uh, terms of like putting touch on the ball when necessary and things like that plate, you know, ball placement and things like that. But, you know, Timmy had good feet for a 14 year old while, although he was growing a ton, he was, you know, a good sized kid for a freshman. He had, still had pretty good feet. Uh, but a lot of it with a quarterback is the mental aspect at the, at a young age, you know, kids pick things up quickly and Tim, Tim picked things up really quickly when he was a kid, you know, and that's, and that's, you know, from freshman year all the way through, um, he was very, very bright. Um, you know, and as he, as he grew and developed throughout the four years at Xavier, he just, you know, his skills just, you know, took off, continued to grow and, and develop. And the reality is this, though, no, regardless of how talented he is as a thrower, as an athlete, he always had a great work ethic. And that's, you know, that's something that is very important for kids looking to play at the college level. You know, we don't even need to talk about the professional level, but kids that are looking to play at the college level, it's a lot of it is, yeah, great. You're, you're very talented, but does your work ethic match your talent? And, you know, cause it, just because you're talented doesn't mean you're going to be given the same opportunities that, you know, the, the last kid was uh, given, you know, and he had a great work ethic from day one uh, and study, you know, studied uh, and not just, you know, his physical work ethic. I mean, he, his nose was in the playbook all the time. He wanted, he, you know, he had that craving for information. That's a, that's a great answer. And he, yeah. Um, the separator between two athletes of equal level of skill is their work ethic and their coachability yeah. and um, you're spot on there. And, and, you know, we're going to take a, take a second here to share an audio clip with everybody in a moment. But one of the things Joe mentioned how much he loves football, Greg, I know as a coach to do it and do it to the level that you do it at, which I'm so proud of you as an older brother, it's, you have to have a love and passion for it to put the time and energy into doing it well one of the things I love most about football is the fact that the game is one, right? There's one day, there's a few hours a week where it's dedicated to the win loss record. What's in the newspaper, what people outside of the team think about, but the game is one in those days when no one's in the weight room, 
you know, you know, taking pictures and writing articles and the game is won in the five or six days of the week of preparation and training and practice and how well you do that so often dictates the product that shows up on a Friday night or a Saturday. So I, we're going to share a, share a clip here with everybody. And, uh, Greg, we're definitely going to want you to, uh, you know, to think about this and provide some insight into what you hear here. Tell you that I miss practice. If, 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 if a coach say I miss practice and y'all hear it, then that's that. I mean, I might have missed one practice this year. But if it might say he doesn't come to practice, it could be one practice. All the practices this year, that's enough. If I can't practice, I can't practice, man. I'm hurt, I'm hurt. I mean, simple as that. It ain't about that. I mean, it's, it's not about that at all. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but it's it's it's, it's easy to, to to talk about. It's easy to sum it up when you just talk about practice. We sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not, a, not, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? I mean, we... That is classic. I love it. <laughs> so in bad. In a sport where preparation, practice, training is so critical to the product that is put out on the field once a week, and with you know this is a you know it's an older video, but it's out there to the general public. Do you have to combat that with the athletes that you coach? Like, how do you get across to them like? Yeah, it's Monday. We don't play until Friday or Saturday, but this drill, this moment is going to have a direct impact on what Friday night looks like when we play. Yeah, one, th one thing I've gotten better at to, in that respect is, is explaining the why we're doing what we're doing at practice. And I wasn't, I wasn't good at it. Uh, when I first started calling it off or even, even as an assistant coach, I wasn't, you know, just never, never spoke about it. But I think it's important the, the the athlete understands the why, like why we're doing this, when we're doing it, uh, you know, throughout the week in practice. So I've been, you know, tried to be more detailed with the, you know, each segment of practice as to what we're doing. Hey, we're working in the green zone here. And I, you know, Tom Coughlin, we all love Tom Coughlin. Yeah, it wasn't just the red zone. It was a red zone and green zone so that we work in those two areas of the field. I want to explain to the kids why we're working in those areas of the field. I mean, we get in that area of the field, we need to score, you know, so we talk about that. And I think, you know, when you explain to them the why sometimes it, it you know, kind of clicks a little bit more with them and they, they maybe understand the purpose of, of individual practice periods. Uh, but even in individual periods with the quarterbacks alone, I mean, I talk a lot about, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and just a quick example of that, and, and we spoke about Tim Boyle already, but one thing that, you know, Tim explained, you know, he and I were going back and forth about different uh, drops that quarterbacks take and, you know, sprinting out and booting out. And 
you know, he explained to me that they work on throwing the ball basically from every arm slot across their body, falling backwards, you know, as they work away from the defender. Because let's be serious, you got a, a guy that's running a four or five chasing you down from the backside. <laughs> so one thing I thought of when he when he's explaining that story to me is, you know, how do I practice boot and sprint out? Well, I always have my kids, okay, in the ideal world, we're going to get our shoulders and hips around. We're going to be able to run towards our tar target as we throw the ball. That's not real. So last year, I implemented the drill that we spoke about, Tim and I. And, and again, I explained to the kids, we're going to do this drill this way because you're never going to be able to do everything exactly textbook in a game. It's just not realistic. Um, you know, so, so something little like that and ex you know, explaining to the kids what the purpose of what we're doing is. And I think that helps in keeping the kids engaged and understanding the importance of practice in general. Uh, to be honest, yeah. the communication is the language of leadership and knowing the why helps connect the kind of the two ends of what you're doing together and make that rational connection in your yeah. brain and gives you the motivation, inspiration to give the effort to tune in and focus and to continually do those mental reps and visualizations. So that's great. You know, another quick, that's spot on Joe. And another quick, quick story related to that is we, we had a two, two, two point plays that we practiced the entire year, starting in the preseason. And I, I, I can't remember truthfully off the top of my head, if I can ever hear a kid or at, you know, a kid ask why we're doing or running these two plays every single day of the week. But I guarantee you when we got to the Fairfield prep game and we ran that two point conversion for the win, and we, it was the play we practiced every single day of the week from the preseason to that point, which is, I think was week five or six. They understood why we worked on that every day. And yeah. again, you try to explain it, but sometimes it takes that moment that they're like, all right, now I yeah. know why we worked on that every single day. And the preparation that they had probably resulted in lower nerves, lower heart rate, and they were able to execute and you probably made the conversion. We did. It was a, it was a great. great moment of the season for all of our kids, um, all the kids. So, Love it. We're going to take one quick final break, wrap up episode number two. Greg, great insight for all those out there that are interested in getting into coaching. Also, for those athletes who are either looking to make the jump from the, the kind of the youth leagues to the high school level, high school level to the college level, et cetera. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with the program closure on the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. All right, we are back with the when athletes shit in the woods podcast, Greg, thank you so much again, just some, some wonderful insight, uh, you know, from a guy that's been doing it for some time. And, and again, I would consider for a, at a high level at a, at a great program here up in Connecticut, Greg, final question uh, for you before we let you off the hot seat, you've handled yourself admirably to say the least. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> with so much uncertainty, with the summer months and then, the, you know, possibly the fall months, it, do you have a bit of advice or wisdom for those coaches that are getting ready for uh, the, the fall season, which, you know, can start as early as maybe mid, mid August. Yeah, I think, you know, 
my advice is real simple because it's what I've been trying to do is stay positive, um, you know, and, and, you know, move forward just as if we're, you know, things are going to go back to normal because you want to make sure that you're prepared regardless of what happens next. Uh, take some time to, you know, evaluate what you've done in the past, um, how you, you know, how you've prepared for practice uh, for a season, you know, evaluate yourself, you know, and don't be afraid to try, try new ways to do things in practice. And, uh, you know, it, at times it, it may not go as you, as planned, but, uh, you know, you can't be afraid to, to try something new. Awesome. Greg, thank you so much for joining us, us this week. It was, uh, it was great to have you on and, uh, you know, again, providing some wonderful insight to those that are, in the coaching field from a guy that's absolutely in the trenches doing it every day. So really appreciate you having, uh, uh, coming on with us today. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah, I mean, it guys. Keep coaching them up to get more jerseys up on that wall. All right. <laughs> it's my hope. Thanks Joe. Thanks Dan. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Joe, any parting shots before we close things up today? Yeah, whether it's leadership in COVA, whether it's leadership of a high school football team or of a school, you know, like Greg does, or leadership where you work, play, or live, you know, preparation and, and being out ahead of the curve is really important, is, is a leadership task, a leadership responsibility. And if you neglect to look upstream and neglect to – um, kind of see around the corner at, at what vulnerabilities and dangers may lie ahead, then you're not really doing everything you can as a leader to lead. And so um, we've seen that come back to bite us here with COVID. And we've seen how being out in front of it with the kids and in Greg's case and being in contact and not waiting till they're back, you know, he's seeing around the corner, anticipating them being back, they'll be ready. And so those are two very contrasting examples of leadership or lack of. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. And yeah, it's, uh, it's like when we, we, we've trained our zip line guides in the past, be ready for the imperfect tour. And uh, as a leader, if you're not getting your right. athletes or your, your local leaders uh, or your students ready for those things that are going to come up that you don't expect, you're not doing your job as a leader. Hey, right. job well done, gentlemen. Great, uh, great time tonight. Yeah, we can clap it up there. Hey, episode two of When Athletes Shit in the Woods is in the books. Thanks for joining. We'll see you in a couple weeks on episode three. Take care, be safe, and get after it. Thank you for tuning in to the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. Don't forget to check us out every other Tuesday for more stories, insights, and commentary from sports guys and gals who don't mind a little bit of dirt, grit, and shit. It's always great to have a plan and to go out and get after it with high expectations, enthusiasm, and passion. However, be sure to remember that the next pile of shit in the woods is just a step away. <laughs>